This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here, again, with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Special guest today, he's a, a due diligence expert. He's a mobile home park owner, operator, investor. He really knows how to look under the hood and, and find lots of problems to uh, keep you from you know, stepping on landmines. So looking forward to today's episode. Please help me welcome Steve Edel. Steve, how are you doing? Uh, doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Well, Steve, for our audience that doesn't know you, you're you're one of the principals of uh, Due Diligence Partners. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into the, got into the MHP business and, and how you got into the due diligence uh, operations as well. Yeah, so I, I, I was surprised. I looked the other day of when I when I started acquiring, acquiring properties and it's actually been a dozen years. And in my mind, it's been much shorter than that. So um, I had many other businesses prior, uh, but I had a good buddy that owned parks. So that's how I first heard about it and learned about it. And uh, then my wife attended a boot camp, uh, Frank and Dave boot camp, um, and she came back with uh, raving reviews. And so I thought, man, there's got to be something to this. This is cool. Uh, so that's how I first heard about it. Um, maybe fast forward, um, I ended up purchasing about a dozen parks, uh, really much more than that, but I ended up with a dozen parks. So I still own a dozen parks in Texas. Um, so I, I, over the last 10 years, purchased uh, you know, a few extra, a few more and sold a few. Uh, but then I st- uh, slowed down uh, buying parks, uh, sort of had, had achieved my goals. And uh, I had an epiphany of the part I like to do of the business the most, because everyone has their part, right? For some of us, it's like financials. And, and for me, which seems to be rare, I've always only liked the DD part. Um, and so also, I used to source deals. Um, I sourced probably easily over 50 deals, uh, worked with a lot with uh, Dave Reynolds, um, I bought parks with Dave. Uh, we uh, shared parks. And for all those deals I brought in, I, do- I did the DD on all of those. So that's what kind of gave me the idea of like, hey, why not formalize this, see what happens. Okay. Uh, a year later, though, I just took off. The rest is history. So now we have a big team. Uh, our niche client is mid-sized clients. And when I say mid-sized operator, that means 20 plus parks. So a lot of our niche clients, they have an internal DD person, but they can't handle, uh, they don't have the bandwidth. So a lot of these parks are larger parks. Many of them are multi-property deals all over the place. There's no way they have a team to go cover everything. So that's where we come in. And that's how it all, that's how it all got started. Okay. Well, great. That's interesting. Interesting background. So yeah, you're one of the, one of the few guys that went to the boot camp and then also got to partner with, with Dave. That's cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure being in, in your business, you got a million, you know, success stories and a million horror stories. Maybe we start off with, you know, 
what's the DD process look like on your end? What do you start with? And then I want to just also talk about uh, what are the most important things and, and, and or what are the things that are commonly missed? We can go over some of those and I've got some other horror stories of my own I can share, but uh, maybe start, <laughs> sure start with how, how you stay. If I call you today and say, Hey, run my due diligence, where, where do you start? Okay. So we start with offsite, of course, and that's whatever you can do behind the monitor and talking to the seller. Uh, but I think what's a little surprising is the city stuff. And I, I know you're well-versed with this stuff, um, but it's much more comprehensive than everyone anticipates. Even our mid-size operators, they usually find that it's, it's a lot more to it. Uh, so to simplify that, I guess I'll, I'll compare it to sort of what the rookie does. And, and it's what I did, what all of us probably did when we, when we started off which was you contact the city and you say, hey, what's the zoned as? And they come back and they say, well, it's uh, you know, legal, non-conforming. That's what most of the 50,000 parks are in Texas. Um, and then they may have something else to say and it's zoned XYZ. It's zoned mobile home park or commercial or multiple things, residential slash whatever. And that's usually where the process dies. So, what we have done is we have over over the many over many years figured out every single possible question that needs to be asked. So on average, it's like 20 to 30 questions that have to do with everything uh, revol uh, involving usability, compatibility, replacement, things like that. So on average, we go back and forth two or three times with the city. That's on average. And the best case scenario is we go back and forth maybe twice, but in extreme cases, we go back and forth like eight times. And the reason for that is eliminate the gray. In other words, most of the time, the answers do not come back black and white, especially these days. There's, as you know, there's a lot of suits. Um, you know, you, you may want to challenge a lot of the restrictions sometimes, but if the right questions are asked, often the answer for zoning and compatibility comes back with a lot of restrictions. So then you have to go back and say, okay, what are they? Like reference the code. What are those restrictions? Um, you say, you're saying it has to, it's, it's legal non-conforming, which doesn't mean anything these days, but it has to be, it has to meet the current code. Well, the current code has a dozen restrictions, it has to do with square footage of the lot. It has to do with the setbacks, which none of them are currently met. Um, it has to do with having paved driveways, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we get to the bottom of it. We make everything black and white as far as all of those answers go. And then at least the buyer, as a buyer, you can make a decision of, number one, am I okay with this? Number two, is there something I need to challenge to protect my investment? Or number three, which is more rare, do I need to get my attorney involved and go, go in guns blazing? And, you know, and a lot of these things that can be resolved by just talking to the city attorney or whatever. Um, but not always. So it's, so that's how we kick things off. No, that, I think that, I think that makes sense. And I think, yeah, you're, you're right that the attorney coming in guns blazing is, is probably yeah. not the best approach. And it's, it's typically, uh, and that's coming as a zoning attorney, but it's right. You know, it's expensive, but it also really just changes the temperature and the atmosphere. Yeah, we do a similar process where we we try to we'll negotiate the zoning letter, and sometimes cities are obstinate and they'll 
I had a city recently, they said, we won't even, we won't even tell you, we won't even opine as to what the status of the zoning is. I, mean, I can see it in the zoning map, I can see it on the parcel map, but I want to know what the restrictions are. And they just said, we're not doing it. I said, what do you mean you're not doing this? We, we don't think we have an obligation to do it. You can do your own research. Like, I'm going to, but I want to know what your opinion is of on your interpretation of the code, because a lot of times these setbacks in particular, they, they may not be valid. You know, depending on when the code was passed, depending on when the park was put in place, depending on you know whether you exacerbate your grandfather use, things like that. So, I think it's it's crucial to start with the city, and and as you mentioned, boot camp Frank Rock always says, you know, don't buy a park that's illegal. You know, you've got legal conforming, which is rare. I'd say five to ten percent. You got a bunch that are legal non-conforming, i.e., grandfather, probably ninety percent of the country, and then you got some other single digit percentage of just purely illegal parks that aren't supposed to be there were never supposed to be there and snuck in the back door and that's a big risk if you buy one of those yeah you hit the nail on the head like how how are they interpreting it because almost every first round answers comes back fuzzy it's like guys this is open records like answer all the questions we need you to answer until we get to those black and white answers um, like another interesting one, and again, it's like 20 to 30 questions. I mean, that's a lot of questions we're asking. Um, but like one of them is triggering new inspections. So something that's happening now in different states and ran, you, you never know where you're going to find this stuff, but you have to ask the right questions. And so like one of them is a new owner can trigger a complete inspection. Like what that means is everything's fine and dandy. Up until the new owner steps in and triggers everything, now you have the fire department coming in, going, "Oh, you don't have enough fire department fire hydrants," and that's going to be like fifteen grand a pop <laughs> to install them. Oh, a lot oh. more than that. I, a lot more than that. I had a park I bought. Oh, and yeah. I did that to him. He spent four hundred thousand dollars on suit water main, putting in like an eight inch main, and then two fire hydrants because yeah, the fire because exactly. the fire chief said, "I want, I want this." Or I'm not giving you a business license. Uh, yeah, I'm with you, man. It's crazy. Yeah, and and setbacks and yada yada. Other things come up, and like you said, exactly. Um, we had one bill add up to as far as just very rough quote. It was going to be 500k of items that needed to be fixed within you know the first two or three months of ownership. Wow. Yeah, definitely, definitely good to look for. Um, I can, I can definitely appreciate that. I've also seen, in addition to triggering new inspections, there's a trigger a new uh, licensure process or a new fee, tap fee, impact fee, some, some of those things. And I had I sold the park in the lagoon, and during the due deal, during the closing period, the due diligence period, the uh, the permit was not was was expiring and renew it, and the guys closed anyway. Rather than ask for an extension, I was waiting on the government to give me the permit. And luckily it got extended, it, it got approved, but they bought the park without even knowing that there was no valid lagoon permit. Oh, wow. I mean, it, it was gonna be, I, mean, I, had sent, I had sent the check off in time, but it wasn't a necessary rubber stamp. They came in, they did an inspection and because they were behind, it took two months instead of two weeks. And during that two months, these guys closed on it and it worked out for them. But I mean, I, I see that kind of stuff happen all the time where people don't think about that. And man, that's why they need to hire, wow. hire guys like you. But, Wow. Okay, so we talked we talk city process. Okay, so let's say that all checks the boxes and it's, we're still good. Um, are you are you then going on site or are you ordering other third-party reports or what's what's your next step of the analysis? Yeah, so, so next is all the off-site stuff. Um, and really, I mean, the whole, the whole purpose of off-site is to uncover 
what the seller is not telling you using whatever resources you have. And there's a lot of resources. Um, find out the story of the park, right? And so, for example, I mean, there's historic aerials, things like that, where if the seller says, well, this park's always been full, but you find out 10 years ago, the majority of the park took off and it was vacant. So what in the world happened? Was there a catastrophic event? You know, did the flood, did the flood wipe stuff out? Uh, just, just, you know, what happened? So that's, so half of it is, is using the tools. The other half is taking the seller materials and uh, just, just making sense of them. And um, you know, the, the very first thing to do, I think when, being new to the process is to the rookie mistake is to, is to call the seller and ask all the rookie questions. You know, you call the seller up and you say, Hey, how many lots, how many occupied, what are the assets? But in actuality, you need to spend a solid week auditing every single item they send you before you have that good interview, because you need that context so that you can add so you can ask all the follow-up questions. Otherwise, it's really a lot of wasted time. Um, and, you know, we all did that. I, I did that when I first started out too. I, you know, the, the rookie call, hey, you know, what do you got? Um, so don't do that. Um, and, and it's the same thing. The offsite process is just making everything black and white. Um, and it's auditing the infrastructure and the agreements and taking a step back and double checking that your purchase agreement has the stuff you're getting. You do that again in the onsite process. But one thing we see a lot is purchase agreements that don't include it all. So with that said, that can part of that can also be strategy, right? You don't want to overwhelm the seller. You just want to get the darn thing under contract. You want to get it wrapped up. But amendments are your friend, as you well know. And so the, the first week offsite, you find out that the park owned home count is off. You find out the assets are off. And by assets, again, as a rookie, or if you're new to the process, you're thinking, oh, that's how many park owned homes? No, there's a lot more to assets than that. Any physical structures, anything underground, um, anything uh, in addition to anything outside of just, you know, the, 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 the homes, the, the, mo the mobile homes. Um, and so that could be things that, uh, you know, are not disclosed because the seller wants you to deal with removing them. You know, that's just, that's just one example. Um, so once you figure out what those actual numbers is the best you can, uh, you want to do an amendment. So you want to say there's X amount of park on homes, there's there's apartment, there's an office, there's a, uh, you know, there's a two-story barn, um, you know, which, we've just seen so many crazy things. Um, there's a, oh, there's, there's, you know, two tractors, whatever it is. And then because inevitably the on-site never matches. So at least when you have it on paper, or even an email, you do the onsite and then you can say, okay, here's, here's where we went off. This is not what we agreed to, uh, to getting. Uh, so, you know, a little bit more detail about the audits. It's very, very detailed. Um, when it comes to agreements, 
for example, uh, you want to ask for any active agreements. And, and you know, for, you know, as an attorney, you know well that that captures everything, right? Something comes up later on, you can say, man, I asked you in writing for all active agreements. You held back that you had these side deals going on. You held back that you had a, these three-year leases. And I thought they were all expired. So we will actually audit not just every single lease, but there's a dozen things we audit in every single active agreement. So it includes uh, deposits uh, because that never adds up to what the seller says. Um, Sometimes we've had buyers get back like 10, 20, 30 K more than they ever would have because they never even thought that you should add up the the tenant deposits that are on each lease. So we audit the terms, we audit any chicken scratch, any maybe custom terms they may have written on the lease, whether they're typed or handwritten, because there's often many different versions of leases. Um, Utility amendments or anything having to do with utilities, such as on paper, they're, uh, they're saying that they're they, they should be getting them for free when they've been illegally billing them for certain utilities, um, things like that. So there's a dozen items. And that's, you know, as you can imagine, that takes hours, sure. uh, especially when you've got hundreds, you know, hundreds of lots or two, 300 lot park. So auditing every single active agreement. Um, and then Beyond that, I don't want to ramble too much about agreements, but beyond that is, uh, again, coming around full circle to what's the story of the park is all the historical stuff. So there's a lot, there are a lot of clues that will give you information on how much turnover there is. And that's just, I mean, that, that, that's the, the critical piece as far as protecting your asset. So there's like, there's six different items that we request that help validate reality of what that turnover is, ranging from an eviction report to historical rent roll um, to, you know, who they think, or if they have any pending evictions right now, um, questions and info like that paint the, you know, paint the complete picture of what's the reality of what, what's really going on after we've got the, the numbers and, and the stuff on paper. No, that, that all, I mean, that all makes sense. I, I've seen some agreements that have become a problem. I know I, I bought a park and the manager apparently had son, was a, she's female. So she, what she had felt unsafe at the park. So she took it upon herself to hire a security company to put it in, you know, like, bank level security cameras throughout the park and she signed a is there a five or i think it was a 10-year contract with a five-year termination clause and it was something like twelve hundred dollars a month with security cameras and i bought the park the it was apparently um it came up at closing or i don't know if it was recorded but it was a it was a substantial penalty you know i don't know if it was tens of thousands but it was definitely north of ten thousand dollar penalty to get rid of it and they wanted, yeah. me to, they wanted me to take it over. I'm like, look, I'm not taking it over. I look at the contract. It specifically says, and I put this in my contract, all, right. all, all agreements, vendors, independent contractors, utility companies, anybody, 
shall be terminated by seller immediately prior to closing unless specifically authorized to remain by buyer in writing. So I'm going to want, the, I may want the trash contract, but I may not. Regularly, I get a new trash company and they always try to stick it to me. And they say, well, the seller required, the seller signed something requiring to be transferred to you. I go, well, I didn't agree to that. And it wasn't of record. It wasn't recorded to land. So I'm not on active constructive notice of it. And I'm not going to do it. And I said, and get your dumpsters off my property because they're trespassing. And I've been able to do that many a time. And they're like, we're going to stick you the bill. I go, what are you going to do? You're going to lean the property? They don't have, you don't have a relationship with me. And you don't have permission to do that. You, and if you had a relationship with the seller, it wasn't a record. So I'm a big fan of reading the agreements. My kind of uh, carte blanche preemptive move is to just say all must be terminated. And then they don't apply to me unless they're recorded. But I'm, I'm doing title objection and reading easements so I can find them. In, in that regard. And that saves me, not on every purchase, but pretty much every purchase, there's something in the contract that I don't want to be a part of. And, and that, you know, whether it's the mowing guy or anything of the sort. That, that's a great example. It just made me think of two more um, example stories is when we audit all the active agreements, uh, for example, one is cable deals. Oh, Most yeah. Most owners don't realize they should be getting paid by the company to, to be providing internet service, not the other way around. And we've run into deals where we've had these terrible contracts signed where the owner is paying the cable company. Um, and so when we audit all those deals, um, another one that's super common, of course, is a uh, water bill back whenever it's a third party like Metron or something like that, that um, has an agreement. And so we audit all of those and really want to, to um, flag what the expiration dates are, what the cancellation terms are, like you mentioned, right. and what it is that the contract states. So is, it, is, the, is the contract saying that, um, you know, they have 150 meters or that they're contracting for 200, 200 meters? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a great example. And Something else I thought about that, of course, is really critical for the offsite process that we do is we rebuild the PL from the ground up. So we get all the utility bills in, and that's helpful. But having done this and having done hundreds of, of, of parks, like, you know, we know if anything's missing. Um, so we'll rebuild it from the ground up. And if there's if there are utility bills missing, which often there there's depends on if it's a professional operation or if it's a mom and pop, then we'll just plug in the uh, industry standard numbers. But then on site will complement that. So when we get uh, to on site, we often find hidden bills. So that could mean that there's additional utility uh, electric bills, for example. They didn't tell us that they're paying for uh, these particular park-owned homes, or they didn't tell us that they're paying for the apartment electric. And so um, that really finishes and completes the uh, the PL rebuild when you when when we when we do the on-site. No, I think that's that's definitely definitely keys. I was telling somebody the other day. I heard I learned this from a contractor that your budget doesn't get blown up from a missed price. It gets blown up from a missed price. 
something that you didn't see. And that's that's where the on-site inspection really is helpful. You can be like, wait a second, what is that building? What is that system there? Like, why is there propane? Is there propane gas? So this what, what, you know, things like things like that um, that you don't you can't you can't see on paper in a mom pa either don't know or don't share. So obviously, I, mean, I I recently had a client that he bought a property without looking at it. I saw the video, the broker sent me the stuff. I'm like, hmm. how busy are you or how minuscule is this dollar amount to you that is not worth a single visit? I just, I just can't fathom that. I mean, um, but, but people do it, right? So in, and if you got somebody skilled on your team doing it, maybe, but I just personally, I'm not signing a bank note for something I haven't seen. That seems like a dumb way to do it. Um, right. So anyway, tell us, tell us some of your, your tricks and tips when you're on site uh, and what you look for. Yeah, yeah. The, and that's always the part of the job I've loved the most. Um, that's that, you know, that's where you go undercover and then it turns into the opposite because the time by the time we've left, every single tenant knows we're there. Um, the manager has caught on to reality of probably what's transpiring here if they haven't been told that the property is for sale. Um so yeah, so the, the on-site process, um, you know, generally takes a couple days. And when I say a couple days, a couple full days and a night. And that's usually two or more people. Um, you know, so thinking back to when I, you know, when I started DD and did my own DD, the, you know, the rookie way is I thought the on-site process was like an hour or two. <laughs> and it could be further from the truth. Um, and, and the magic really happens when you're on site all day long. Uh, so, you know, we end up in that time, we end up interviewing all of the staff and uh, especially the hidden staff, which is half of the time. So often, you know, you're, you're given the standard, you know, the, the, you, the, the standard answer or the standard info for the manager, their contact info, what do they do? But then you go outside and you find out, well, there's an assistant manager and there's, there's, there's Billy Bob handyman and he's really doing most of the work. And there's a second handyman and there's a third guy that picks up everyone's trash, which is why everyone's lots look so good. So that's something else we have to add into the PL. Right. Uh, or the new owner will have to notify the tenants that, oh, by the way, that's an, that was an amenity and it's going away. You really need to clean up your own lot from now on. Um, so I would say, you know, that's always been the most, that's, what's always drawn me to onsite. That's always the most fun. And I always say, you know, there's 50,000 parts in America and every single one is different and has its own, uh, personality. And to this day, I mean, I usually get some really unique things out of every, every single onsite process. Um, so that's, you know, so that's about how much, um, time it takes. Um, as far as the different things that go on, uh, the second you hit the ground, uh, you know, you should be auditing the infrastructure. So you're auditing the exact lot count. You're auditing every single lot number to see if it matches. Um, sometimes you have to create your own lot map if one wasn't provided. If one was provided, you're auditing every single lot number to see if it's correct or not. You're auditing uh, vacant lots. And on vacant lots, it's a big deal. I mean, there's a dozen things that we're auditing there. So we're not just auditing, is it, you can't really audit usability if you're not looking at the details. So we're not just looking at, does it have, you know, uh, electric, water, sewer, gas? 
we're making a note of the condition. So for water, does it actually have a water connection? It's not broken, it's not, it's not bent. Does it actually have one? Sewer, is it capped? So we'll make a comment. We've actually, you know, we've got everything, all this information in, in different columns. And, you know, for, you know, for a sewer, is it capped? Because if it's not, it's often broken and there's debris in there and there's gonna be a cost there to actually fix it. And, and then is, is there an electric box and does it meet code? So in other words, is it rusty? Is it leaning a certain percentage, which makes it not usable and it needs to be replaced? Is it old school? Does it have like old type, uh, like fuse types? You know, have you seen those, the fuse type breakers? Oh yeah, knob and tube. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, those have the old school, which are definitely, the, the electrician is definitely going to require, require right. you to replace. And are they, you know, 100 amp, uh, 150, 200? Are they 60 amp RV boxes? You know, what are they? And so that really uh, paints the picture of how usable really are those lots and what's the cost in, in going to be to get them all to be usable. Um, and the rest of the infrastructure would be the roads, the sewer. We always do a camera inspection. Um, and finally, the asset audit, which is any structures the park owns. Um, and, uh, and that covers the, the whole infrastructure audit. That's, that's, you know, that's how we kick things off. Um, when it comes to sewer, um, you know, again, back to my rookie days, I thought, you know, maybe that takes an hour or two, but especially for a big park, that's why we need a team of two or more people. If it's like a 500 lot park, we'll have a team of four or five guys there for two solid days um, because we have to have one person that's babysitting the, the plumber. And as you know, you cannot get an effective, you cannot rely on a sewer inspection by just saying, go do it. Um, so we have to have a dedicated person babysitting the plumber, uh, documenting what type the sewer lines are, what size they are, where the how how it flows, um, and and all of that. Because um, you know I've run into cases where the the plumber says it's the wrong material. I'm like, no, dude, that's clay. That's like not Orangeburg, you know. Um, so we I identify just, the types. I want to I want to I want to ping you on that. Yeah, yeah. I want to jump in there on that because I. I just got under contract in two parks, and one of them was the Orangeburg. Was, it was Orangeburg, and it was failed everywhere. We ended up dropping that contract. Second yeah. one, it was supposed to be PVC, but then we did a camera line, and we found Orangeburg. So I'm curious what your opinion is on Orangeburg in general, because I've got differing opinions from different folks. Is, is it supposed to last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? And then, you know, if it's if it's still there, it's 40 years old. Is it is it going to implode tomorrow or is it you know it's made it 40 you know and that doesn't seem to be a problem what is what is your general tolerance of, of how much orangeburg and then i also curious just as you're cameraing these parks especially a big park are you cameraing every single inch of that sewer line yeah so great questions so the fur the the fur to to address the first one orangeburg it's not necessarily bad it's obviously a, a softer material that's a given um and older, softer material. Uh, but I've seen all, but, but so the variables that determine whether it sucks or it's just all right, and you'll get another 20 years out of it, is what's the size of the line? Uh, so is it four, five, 
um, eight inch lines, right? So I've seen, I've seen an older park, for example, had eight inch orange bird lines, which were just solid. I mean, run after run, just not a flaw in them. Um, because proportionally the larger, the bigger the line is, the bigger the, the, the shell is right. Um, and so like for Orangeburg, I mean, it, you can have like an inch, it's, it's kind of like this honeycomb material. It's weird. It's like cardboard, but it's plastic. Um, and you can be like an inch thick. So it holds up well. The other variable that really affects it is how deep are the lines and historically what kind of uh, ground saturation is going on and root intrusions, right? So we look up, you know, trees are one of the huge cost buckets. So we always audit trees, right? What kind are they? How, how big are these things? Are they 20 foot trees? Are they hundred foot trees? Cause roots, root systems destroy sewer systems over time. Sure. So those are all the variables that are going to be involved that we note as we're, as we're checking out the lines. Your second year, the second, second thing you brought up was like, do you really inspect the whole thing? Um, and our goal is greater than 80%. So as you can imagine, that's why we have to have somebody dedicated to babysitting, uh, you know, the plumber for like a 500 lot for 500 lot park, for example, that would take five to seven hours um, is what it took for this one a couple months ago. Um, so, you know, main lines, what they also call laterals um, are usually accessible. And part of that too is asking all the right questions for equipment. So if you're not super familiar with the video inspection process, if you don't know the dozen things to ask for, for equipment, inevitably you're going to have the wrong stuff show up and you're going to miss your date and not be able to, to, to do the job. So I'm not going to cover all dozen things, but for example, do you have a 300 run? Uh, and that's the foot. That's how long the run goes, right? Especially if you have a bigger park. Um, do you have extensions? Do you have rollers that help feed it through? If you have bigger lines, if you have a bigger park, um, do you have a color system, which is a newer system? How are you saving off? If they go, if they say, well, we save it to DVD, it's like, ah, that's, that's an older school system, right? And that's like red flags. Uh, you know, we know a lot of stuff beforehand, like are there manholes? Well, if there's manholes, it might be six to eight feet deep to actually get in the line. So do you have a sheath to feed, uh, to feed the, the, the camera through? If not, you've got a million reasons the plumber will show up and go, oh yeah, well, I don't have a sheath. So, you know, I'm done. I can't do the job. Or he shows up with a residential system that that's got a 50 to hundred foot line. It's like, well, this is not going to work out. Um, or just a really old system. Um, you know, you can, you have to verify all these dozen things. Like for example, is your recording working? You could have a guy show up with the camera system that says, well, I just, I just assumed you needed to see the video, not that you needed to actually record it. Um, <laughs> so, and then, but we also do double recordings on top of that. So just in case, because we do not trust anyone, anything that anyone does, we record everything. Um, so even if, as they're being lined, we take a bunch of still shots and even videos of like problem areas that come up. Um, 
And so to tie offsite into onsite, um, one of the cool things we do is, again, we look at historical information and we have a lot of map resources. So almost always parks are built in different phases and you need to know what phases it was built in before you go do your sewer inspection, for example, right? So we have these historicals and we know, okay, for example, there's like a hundred lot park. Well, we know that the first street that has 20 homes on it was built in 1940. We know that the second street that has 40 homes on it was built in the 70s. And then we've got that other street that is pretty darn new. I mean, it's like a new, new park. Well, you can guess if they haven't replaced any laterals since 1940, which, you know, do the quick math there, 81 years, you're looking at cast iron or you're looking at clay that's completely crumbled or what I call Frankenstein system. And we know almost always that we're going to have a Frankenstein system based on, on the map information that we pull up. So we're looking, I mean, my record is six different materials. Wow. And, and you can have even materials inside of a different material. Um, so you never know. You could literally have, you know, PVC, concrete, um, um, Orangeburg. I mean, you could have it all. Um, and, and that's often, you know, that is the case too uh, with a lot of older parks because they've never, they, they just fix as they go. They never sure. actually go replace a whole line. The bandit, yeah, the band-aid approach is definitely the the go-to approach for most mom and pa owners. And yeah, yeah. I think people tell me, yeah, I fixed it 25 times or something. It's like, okay, that that's indicative of a problem. You maybe you should <laughs> just replace the line and abandon that one. I've had it where you talk about caps on them. I've got a park we bought last year and none of them had caps on the sewers. So I'm like, oh. and there and I, I tried to camera them. You, they didn't even make it five feet. It's just like this dirt full of dirt and rock. Like, okay it's going to be cheaper just to run a new line. I was going to budget like running another 60 feet of sewer line into the main. So definitely due diligence is, is critical. You're, you're obviously a wealth of information, very, very detailed, which is what we, we all want to need in our due diligence process. So this is, this has been very good. Uh, Steve, before, before we wrap up any other kind of last tips or tricks you want to share? Um, uh, yeah. Two things come to mind, okay. Um, especially as you're as you're sharing, um, you know what you've seen too is uh, is is capex. So we call that deferred maintenance on our on our reporting system, and we come up, you know, on average we we come up with fifty to hundred deferred maintenance items on every single property. And the the biggest uh, one of the biggest things we did uh, a month ago is we, we went public with CapEx information on our reporting. So we use industry averages to apply to the cost buckets for all of the deferred maintenance items we find. So there's like less than 10,000, 10 to 50,000 and over 50K. Um, so for the example you were just mentioning, you know, you get in there and you can't even run the line. You know, of course we run stuff like that, right? But we can say based on, everything. This is going in the 50K plus cost bucket. Um, these are the conditions and it's going to, the industry estimate for jetting the system, just so that you can look at the thing is X, X, X amount. And, um, and that's all in the reporting. And so you're using a third party report to say, Hey, seller, not me, these guys, it's, here's all the, here's all the info industry standard, you know, industry estimates. This is what 
I have been given. And lastly is the drone. Um, we thought it was just cute in the beginning, but now it's something that we can't live without. And when I say droning the property, it doesn't mean taking a video and a couple of cute pictures. Uh, what we do is drone mapping. So it takes thousands of pictures, stitches them together and creates an interactive 2D and 3D uh, map along with the topography map, which is accurate to the inch. So the topography map is color coded because as you know, city county topography maps are worthless. <laughs> so this has really changed the world for DD and, and all of our clients because with that topographical information, we're able to spot problem areas, drainage issues, flood issues, regardless of what the floodplain is, um, and really look at it that way with a microscope. Yeah, man, that's cool. I've, uh, we used to, when I, I used to be county appraiser here in Kansas City, Jackson County, and we, we were always trying to get pick time and train a couple of companies to do the drone imaging for us countywide. It cost 600000 a pop, I think. It was a, it was a big number, but... Yeah, I knew the technology is amazing. It could tell you the roof line, could tell you if there could spot unpermitted additions like garages and sheds, and could tell yeah. you the square footage, save you from having to measure by hand. And I was like, man, this would be amazing. I've not used it on mobile home parks, so that's that's great to to figure out how to. Use. I've got a little drone for my kids, but it's, it's, it's <laughs> not as good as yours. Mine was thirty nine dollars on Amazon, and, it, it, and I'm not very good at flying it, but. Uh, I have to. I'm gonna have to see what model you got and figure that. Yeah. seems like a reasonable business expense. I can. I can flow through the company as a, a better drone. Uh, mm -hmm. That sounds fun. All right, Steve. This is great. Before we jump, uh, where can people find you? Oh, uh, dodiligencepartners.com is the website. So if you go to dodiligencepartners.com, um, we you know we're very transparent. So even all the. Uh, all the DD questions um, that are most often asked are even answered on there. Cost, everything is on there. So yeah, get a hold of us that way. If you if you need some help or just or just have any questions, um, we're always we're always available to just um, answer some uh, answer questions too. All right, sounds good. Thanks again, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. That was fun. All right, bye now. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.